Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast where we interview documentary storytellers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, and this is our first official episode. I work as the artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival and as the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. Those jobs have put me in touch with hundreds of documentary storytellers. Now I want to share their stories with you. Our guest today is Kahani Cooperman, who started out in the late 1980s working at Maisel's Films. She spent 18 years at The Daily Show, rising to be co-executive producer, but she left last year and now has a new job as showrunner for The New Yorker Presents. I got an email from Alex Gibney, and he says, I don't know what you know John Stewart's announcement means for you, but I have a rather extraordinary opportunity. My connection to Kahani goes back four years and requires a little personal history to explain. In 2011, my wife Rafaela Nehausen and I were raising our one-year-old son in Manhattan and decided it was time to move to the suburbs. We heard about a group of people who wanted to start a film festival in Montclair, New Jersey, not far from New York City. Rafael and I had already started one festival with Doc NYC, so we thought, why not another? And we got the job. Kahani and her family lived in Montclair and were early supporters of the festival. She was working at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and her husband, Jeff Cooperman, was the managing producer of The Colbert Report. We got to be friends. Last year, Rafaela teamed up with Kahani to produce the short film Joe's Violin that you'll hear more about later. When I was looking for a first guest on Pure Nonfiction, I had two things in mind. She had to be a great storyteller, and she had to be a good sport to record in my basement because it's the most quiet room in the house. Kahani fit both criteria. Also, I was curious to know how she wound up in so many great jobs. Kahani grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and studied English and modern drama at the University of Chicago. In the late 1980s, she moved to New York City to get an MFA in film at Columbia University, which was better known for fiction than nonfiction. To start the conversation, I asked Kahani what drew her into documentary. Instinctively, I was drawn to real people's stories. I just, everything I read or I saw... I ended up just unexpectedly being more curious about making those stories, telling stories that way. The school, I will say, was a little perplexed. They didn't really have a program for it. They didn't have any kind of infrastructure. And I just kind of went ahead anyway and was on the lookout for interesting stories of real people in the world. I think I saw, like, Roger and Me and other films that just really got me excited about telling stories that way. Also, hugely influential was there was a bulletin board in the main hallway at school, and I saw a little notice on it that said, summer job at Maisel's Maisel's Films. And I, at the time, did not know who the Maisels were. But I said they make documentaries, and I just thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I called the number, and I got an interview, and I went there, and I interviewed, and I got the job. Without knowing it, Kahani had landed in a legendary home of documentary film. The brothers Albert and David Maisels had been pioneers of theatrical documentaries with films like Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and Grey Gardens. In 1987, the younger brother, David, died of a stroke at the age of 55. Albert remained a distinguished figure in New York, known for his black, horn-rimmed glasses 
and a magnetic personality that drew people to his camera. He surrounded himself with collaborators that made the company a vital hub. It was a summer job running the front desk. And when you run the front desk at Maisel's, you know, you're in the center of everything. So suddenly I was in the place and around me are like Joe Berlinger and Bob Richmond and, of course, Albert and Susan Fromke and Deborah Dixon. And it was an incredible time there, very exciting. And this whole world opened up to me. So late 80s, Maisel's films, what was going on there? They were... um, you know, making a lot of films about classical music artists. So there were all these films going on. There was film, a film about Vladimir Horwitz and a film about Seiji Ozawa and a film about Jesse Norman. And, you know, they have to pay the bills. And they were doing Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover documentaries, which... It was like an annual gig for them for a while. It was. And they would dig commercials and industrials. So all around me, there were editors at work. Um, real people casting people at work. It was all kinds of things. Then there were also like just your commercials and, you know, industrials. So was that illuminating to you that this company that maybe you thought of walking in as a documentary company also had this side business doing commercials? It was like, oh, reality check. If they can't make a living making films, who can? What I learned from that right away was that You have to use these skills in a lot of different, if you have them, um, you know, use them in a lot of different ways to make ends meet. It's, you know, a very rare person that could ever have, think to have a career just from making documentaries. But they approached every one of these projects like it was a documentary film in a way. So there was never like a drudgery feeling about any of these projects that were going on. It became like a second film school. And and it's kind of cemented my passion for this is the way I want to tell a story. So I had to do a thesis for Columbia, and um, I decided I'm doing a documentary. Kahani made a short documentary called Cool Water. So Cool Water was um, the story of two young ice carvers in love. And they were a young couple who used chainsaws to carve sculptures out of 300-pound blocks of ice. They loved each other ice sculpting, and Led Zeppelin. And I'm not sure in what order, but that was their thing. They loved it. They were so passionate. They were sweet as hell. And they really saw the ice sculpture as a high art. I mean, there was something beautiful about the fact that they put so much into it only to have it melt away. Here's a clip from Cool Water where the two young ice carvers talk about their favorite sculptures. Cool Water premiered at the 1991 Sundance Film Festival, where Kahani met Richard Linklater. She later directed a documentary behind the scenes of his film, Dazed and Confused. Here's a clip from Making Dazed about tensions on the set. The first voice is producer James Jacks, followed by Linklater. I had the power on the set, not Rick. It was our movie. Now, it was his vision, and we were there to help him. But if we really had a problem with it, Rick would have been gone. I knew he was a wrestler, kind of burly, you know, wrestler guy. But I was quick, you know, I had him on speed. So I was already planning 
Like if, if he makes a move to me, I'm gonna back up and start jabbing. I was ready for him that way, because if he could get his bear hug around me and a wrestler, I would be doomed. So I was ready to do my float like a butterfly and just start. I was ready, I was ready. It didn't get to that. You can find Making Dazed on the Criterion Collection DVD of Dazed and Confused. Next, Kahani produced Nick Broomfield's documentary, Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madam. Then she got a job in Los Angeles on a TV series for the new FX network. It was called Lost and Found. It was about reunions and their stories of reunions. And, you know, I interviewed, I got the job, and it was like a 10-week paying gig, which for me at that time was huge. So I could pitch reunions that I thought of, but also they gave me some. So the ones I pitched, I reunited a band from my high school. And wonderfully, I asked Albert Mazels, hey, do you, is there anyone you want to be reunited with? And without a second thought, he said, yes, there is. There's a woman from high school who I was always too nervous to talk to. And I always wondered what happened to her. And Albert's, of course, he, he has no ulterior motive. He's was a very happily married family man, but he was just curious. What happened to this person? Who is she now? Here's Albert Mazels, then in his late 60s, in Lost and Found. Well, I'd like to see uh, Janice Berg. I haven't, uh, I've never really known her. I've seen her uh, walking through the corridors of Brooklyn High School 50 years ago when I was uh, in my last year of high school. And she was... um, Tall and sturdy, maybe even taller than I. And as I recall, a very, very uh, poetic kind of woman with uh, eyes that uh, that had me enchanted to the point where I just uh, wanted to go up to her, to talk to her, to uh, uh, I was too shy. I just uh, never, never said a word to her as far as I can recall. In her. I found um, peace of mind. So we found her, Janice Shulman. They had grown up in Brookline, Massachusetts together. And she was widowed. And and we interviewed Janice in her home. And she was lovely. She just could not. She's like, I can't imagine why he would want to see me. And she was just, I hope I did nothing to hurt his feelings. Like, it was just, like, so... Sweet, but she was game. Like, it was so wonderful. She was game to do this. So my idea was to go with her on a train to Philly, a train that stops in New York where Albert would get on. Somehow they would find each other on this train and then take the journey together to Brookline, Massachusetts, where they had gone to high school. So I met Albert at the station, and I got him onto the train, and I I said, Albert, she is on the next car, and I'm not going to tell you who she is, you're just going to have to figure it out. So he's like, okay, you know, and in his mind, he's remembering like a 16 or 17-year-old girl. But he walks through the train, the next car, and he's looking from seat to seat. He, he passes by her, and he keeps walking, and suddenly he stops. And I hope I'm remembering this right, but, um, but and he stops, and he turns around slowly, and he takes a few steps backwards, and he says... Janice? And she looks up and she says, yes. And then, you know, it was incredible. So they're ha- they have their room. They sit next to each other. They talked the whole time. It was so great. And we 
arrive at their high school, and in the parking lot, word had gotten out. So there were fellow classmates were waiting for them. So it was a very sweet scene, and they all walk around the halls together, and he has his moments with Janice. And, and at the end of their stroll, she kisses him on the cheek, and, and he just smiles from ear to ear, looks up at heaven, throws his arms up and said, wow, if only that could have happened in high school. And it was just so <laughs> lovely. And that was the piece. And the show, by the way, only had one season. And I'm sure no one ever even saw it. But it was very special to do that with Albert. <laughs> After Lost and Found, Kahani returned to New York, where she interviewed for a new TV show. They were developing a show for Comedy Central that may, may or may not happen. They didn't know. It was maybe going to be called The Daily Planet. They weren't sure, but they were looking for field producers. And in 1996, I started as a field producer on The Daily Show. First, the show's host was Craig Kilborn. You know, The Daily Show was supposed to kind of look like a news show. Like if you turned your sound off, you wouldn't know that this isn't a news show, which kind of worked and kind of didn't. Our original sets did not look like news show sets. So what I had to do was field pieces. So I'd go with correspondence into the field to real, you know, real stories, real people, real characters. It was much more news of the weird back then, which was right up my alley. And um, we'd travel all over the world. In my first year, I did 40 field pieces. I do remember, though, that, um, you know, I came from documentary, and I came from, like, the Maisel's way of doing things, which is to let people tell their own stories. You don't get in there. And suddenly, like, I had to use a correspondent as a way of telling these stories and getting these jokes in. And so I was resistant at first, totally naively. And I remember, like, getting put in my place by the executive producer, like, saying, look, however you want to do things out of here is fine. But here, it's like we're correspondent-driven, and you make it work. Near the end of 1998, Kilborn departed as host and was replaced by John Stewart. When John came, he came ready, really, to make a very different type of show than what we had been making. He, especially because I was, you know, in charge of the field department at that time, we had conflicts. You know, I do remember once having, being in his office after a taping, and he was in his suit, but getting changed while we were having this argument about this piece. And so... I just I had to turn away so as not to see him getting dressed. So I was facing a corner of the wall, arguing out, you know, my side of things while he was arguing his. And in the end, and I think this was true for the whole show, not just the field department, he said, your targets are wrong. The targets can't be the people who are who don't have a voice. The targets need to be the people who do have a voice. And that's the media and that's the politicians and that's who this needs to be about. And that's what he cared about. It was really interesting and very eye-opening. So that's like the main turn that the show took. And he started in, I think, 98. And by 2000, when we had a presidential election that we were going to be traveling for, for these, you know, to the conventions, um, we were like a whole new team. That was really the game changer for us because suddenly... Instead of getting rejected by all the politicians and big names that we wanted to talk to, I think they started seeing it could be to their advantage to talk to us. 
you know, John Stewart never let us rest on our laurels ever for a second, which is why one of the reasons I think, like, the show remained at a high quality for so long. Even then, you know, I never expected for me to have stayed as long as I did. When I met Kahani in 2012, she was eager to get back into documentary films. I invited her to be a juror at the Doc NYC Festival, and a year later, she was a documentary juror at the Sundance Film Festival. To just be immersed in all of these films and discussing them, I was just like, I am so in. I just can't wait. Like, what do I need to do to, like, make this happen? And, you know, but I still had a job, and I had a, I have a family, and I had missed a bit of the evolution of documentary over those years. And so I, I made a concerted effort to find out who's making films. Like, what haven't I seen? Like, who's broadcasting films? Who shows films? And I re-educated myself, and I emerged from that experience knowing, like, the next thing for me is I want to make a film. I need to re-earn my stripes. We'll be back with more from Kahani Cooperman in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by SundanceNow.club. Watch hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers and guest curators such as Ira Glass, Laurie Anderson, and Susan Sarandon. This month on Doc Club, look for the collection of true crime films, including the groundbreaking series The Staircase and Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss. Download the Doc Club app or go to docclub.com to sign up for a free month. Now let's go back to Kahani Cooperman as she talks about getting an idea for a new documentary while listening to the radio. I, I commuted to The Daily Show. Uh, I drove. And so I drove from my liberal New Jersey suburb in my Prius listening to NPR because I'm a cliche. And <laughs> I kept hearing I heard a, a promo a few days in a row for an instrument drive that WQXR was going to be having. And it was, you know, donate your instruments and all the instruments we collect are going to go to New York City school kids. Like Joseph Feingold, a 91-year-old Holocaust survivor from the Upper West Side. And I just thought, huh, I wonder what the story of that violin is. It was a violin. I, I bet it has a story. And then like over at the next block, I, I was at the light and I thought like, wait, but it's going to go to a school kid in New York City. Like, I wonder what that kid's story is. By the time I got to the parking lot, like this whole film, like played, it was like, just played itself out in my head. The radio station WQXR collected the instruments, and through Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, the violin was placed at the Bronx Global Learning Institute for Girls, where every student learns to play a string instrument beginning in kindergarten. In this clip from Joe's violin, the teacher, Coco Tanaka Suwan, presents the violin at an assembly to 12-year-old Brianna Perez. It's such a joy to teach you every single day here at school. You display display a passion for music that is very rare. We know, Brianna, that you will cherish this violin and enjoy playing on it just as Joseph does. Kahani started work on Joe's violin while still employed at The Daily Show. 
but that would change in April 2015. John Stewart announces on a Tuesday night to the viewing audience that he's leaving The Daily Show. The day after he announced that he was leaving, I got an email from Alex Gibney, and he says, I don't know what, you know, John Stewart's announcement means for you, but I have a rather extraordinary opportunity, a show called The New Yorker Presents for Amazon, and it was taking The New Yorker magazine and translating it into short films um, to make these half-an-hour episodes. And, and I watched the pilot, and I felt like it was something I, I could maybe do. I just was compelled. But I also felt that I could be really honest. I had nothing to lose because I had this job on this show and my contract was until September and I could stay if I wanted. And so I just didn't feel like that kind of pressure, which I think in the end helped me be more honest about what I thought. You know, I essentially went on my first job interviews in almost 19 years. I had to go through four levels of interviewing, starting with Alex Gibney and finally ending with David Remnick at The New Yorker. And everyone was like, are you nervous about these interviews? I'm like, no, I'm really not nervous about the interviews. I'm nervous I'm going to get this job. Like, Kind of a big thing to change jobs after you've had so much success at an incredibly successful show like The Daily Show. You're you're not kidding. The Daily Show had become like the best velvet handcuffs ever. And I loved people I worked with. And I was so in my comfort zone there, but I was also not challenged anymore. And I was just so ready for something else. I just never expected it to come that quickly. I thought like, oh, maybe I'll finish this film and then that might get me to the next thing. I just didn't think this something was going to you know, present itself so So did The New Yorker satisfy your appetite to be challenged? Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I had a weekend in between my almost 19 years of The Daily Show and starting up this brand new show. Um, from, From the ground up, we did have a pilot, which was great. So there was a place to start. But staffing and structuring the show and our new ideas and then being the main person to coordinate between a lot of very powerful voices. My diplomacy skills, thank God, were already quite good. And now they are sharpened to like just a fine point. And I was able to structure how we were going to make the show, but also how we could take all of these short films And even though they're all done by different people about different things and in different styles, make them feel like they were from the same universe. That was part of my job was to, like, creatively figure out what's the gel here. Over the course of a number of months between our four in-house teams of producer directors and our outside filmmakers, more than 50 films were made, which is at a high level. And I had a weekend in between The Daily Show and this. So I still haven't really, because we're just finishing up The New Yorker Presents, fully digested that I left The Daily Show because I never had time to. In The New Yorker Presents, Kahani serves as the showrunner and executive producer alongside the Oscar-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. Each show presents a variety of material, like the magazine. There's reportage, fiction, humor, and, of course, cartoons. For the documentary segments, They've recruited top filmmakers like Lucy Walker and Roger Ross Williams. 
Here's a clip from episode two. It's a segment about children rodeo riders based on an article by Burkhart Bilger called The Ride of Their Lives. Filmmaker Steve James, best known for Hoop Dreams, directed this piece. We're going to hear seven-year-old Ryder Rutledge, a champion rider of bucking calves, getting advice from a coach. Awesome. 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 Get a hole! Get a hole! Get over there! Get over there! Hey! Get up! You scared yourself in the butt, didn't you? He never touched you. Show me where there's a rock. Look, look, is that a rock? That ain't a rock. You spurred yourself in the butt because you let go. Get up, you're getting on the You can't let go. Walk it off. What are you crying about? What are you sniveling about? What hurts? What hurts? Why does your hand hurt? My rope was too tight. No, your hand don't hurt because your rope's too tight. Your hand hurts because you're a wiener. Quit crying. Or you can go play tiddlywinks. You want to go play tiddlywinks? I know you don't. You want to ride gifts. I know you do. You're good at it. Give me some. Are you champ or chump? Champ or chump? Champ or chump? You can watch The Ride of Their Lives in Episode 2 of The New Yorker Presents on Amazon. Kahani's short film, Joe's Violin, will premiere at the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival. Our conversation wound back to Albert Mazels who passed away last year at the age of 88. I asked Kahani when she last saw him. Sadly, I hadn't seen him in a while, and I had reached out to him, and for the first time ever, didn't get a call back. And, you know, I was like, huh, that's strange. And I found out afterwards that when I had called was right when he had gotten his diagnosis. And I think that was that. And then I had a plan to go visit him and say hi. And he died the night before. So I didn't get to see him again. And my last time seeing him, though, was a joyous moment. We actually met on the red carpet at the Emmys. (laughs) He was there for Grey Gardens, which had been on HBO. And I was there with The Daily Show. So we have you know, pictures of us, you know, with our arms around each other. He's in a tuxedo and I'm in my dress, smiling away. And I'm wearing really dorky sunglasses and he's wearing his cool Albert glasses. And I'm like, I wish I was wearing those. But it's a, it's a great picture. And that was my last time physically seeing him. I want to thank Kahani Cooperman for being our first guest on Pure Nonfiction. In our next episode, we'll talk to Dawn Porter, whose new documentary, Trapped, tells the human stories behind this year's Supreme Court case on abortion. She'll talk about that film and the steps in her career leading up to it. Just the fact of my presence being a black woman in the room probably made people, I probably cut down on 50% of the bullshit before it got to me because people were like, oh, that's wrong. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Coordinating producer, Rachel fishman Federson, And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.